Well, tonight, as we've just been singing about the depth of the love of our Savior toward us, I think it's fitting that tonight we're actually going to be focusing on the depth of, of the zeal of Christ for us as well. Uh, it's no accident that even as uh, Cole was playing the worship service that it always just happens that the songs always fit so perfectly with the text, right? And we're going to see that here in just a brief moment that we are going to be seeking to just uncover a little bit of the minds, the treasure field of Christ, not just love, but again, his zeal for us as his church. Tonight, I'd like to go ahead and invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2, specifically in verse 13. Uh, we're going to be picking up on this wonderful scene of Jesus cleansing the temple. I say wonderful, a little tongue-in-cheek, because as we read it, you're about to see a side of Christ that we often don't talk about. We're about to see what happens when his zeal for the church truly is seen in all of its glory and splendor. When his zeal for God's house utterly consumed him, eating away at his own soul in such a way that he couldn't stand by as false worship that was happening in the temple itself was taking place. And he had to do something about it. And so without any further ado, I'd love to turn our attention to the reading now of God's word from John chapter 2, verse 13, as we see this theme of, again, Christ's zeal for the house of God. John 2, verse 13 says the following to us, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And so making a whip of, a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, this is the word of God. It is forever faithful and true, unchanging, and it has been given to us in love. All of us who receive it here this evening. With this in our minds, let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and that to you is due all of these things, praise and adoration, singing and prayers of confession alike. We pray, O oh God, that in this time, as your word has been read over us, and as it is about to be preached now over us, we ask, O oh God, that you would give us hearts that are aflame with the word of Christ, that the Holy Spirit of God would, would truly stir up within us 
a burning passion for your name, that zeal for your house, even here in the local expression of the church at New Hope, would utterly consume us and not leave us unchanged. We ask, O oh God, that as your word is preached over us, that we would become all the more the people that you have called us, people who've been called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Again, once exiles and strangers, orphans and widows, but now beloved, dearly beloved children of God. And so we ask all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, recently uh, a dear friend of mine, whom I think a few of you know, uh, Brett Eubank, if I can just say his name here, a uh, dear pastor friend of mine here in Lynchburg at Rivermont Prez, had asked me to watch his two-year-old golden retriever named Annabelle. Now, I think AJ looks like you might know Annabelle personally, and she is a very sweet dog. And believe it or not, my dog Baxter, whom I think all of you have also met, uh, maybe he jumped in your faces, which wouldn't be unlike him, but my dog Baxter is literally best friends with Brett's dog Annabelle. They're about the same age, they're both retrievers, and when Brett, a few weeks ago, needed a much, oh, had a much-needed vacation ahead of him, uh, he asked me, hey, do you mind watching Annabelle for me? So, of course, I said yes, as long as I could bring Baxter with me. You could only imagine what happened when they got together. They were running around the backyard, chasing balls, chasing each other, chasing sticks, tackling each other, because that's what dogs do. And they just had the time of their lives for three straight days. The problem was, though, I had another day ahead of me, the fourth day right before Brett and his wife got back from their vacation. And on the fourth day, it just so happened to be raining. And of course, we all know here in Lynchburg that when it rains, it rains. <laughs> we don't call it Drenchburg without good reason. <laughs> Even today, the surprise snow flurries, right, were upon us. And so, you, of course, we call this place Drenchburg with good reason. But these two dogs, as we as I was thinking, okay, when can I take them outside? It's raining all day long, it's not stopping. When can I finally let them outside? I figured, okay, well, there's three minutes here. It looks like the rain's stopping a little bit. Okay, maybe this is the best time to let them out. So I let them out. You can probably see where this is going. <laughs> the two puppies, two-year-olds, right, ran outside, and literally they were outside for about three minutes. But upon letting them in, you can just imagine what happened. See. They were soaked head to tail. And not just soaked, they were muddy as all get out. That clay, the nice Virginia clay had gotten all over them. And as soon as they got inside, immediately they were off, running circles around each other, tackling each other, tracking in mud. And for those of you like AJ again, who have probably been over to Brett's house, <clears throat> you know in the living room he has, and I think it's his wife's technically, has two very nice, white, clean, pure snow white couches. And sure enough, both Baxter and Annabelle jumped on those couches, got mud all over the place. But you can imagine that I separated those two dogs faster than you can blink. <laughs> but the mud had already made its way into the house. See, an hour later, and a good bath later, both those dogs were cleaned. But then, before Brett and his wife got back, the real work began. See, I began to feverishly clean my dear friend's house to the best of my ability. Well, this evening, friends, we are about to see here in John chapter 2 a far greater act of 
cleaning going on here than just cleaning up after two muddy dogs. Here in our text of John 2, we see the very zeal of Jesus for God's house utterly consume him to the point that he physically removed those figurative dogs who had muddied up God's holy place of worship. But see, this scene in John chapter 2 is so much more than just a mad rush or a cleaning spree, right? Like spring cleaning that's upon all of us at this point, I imagine. This passage, however, though, is utterly relevant to each one of us here. How so? Well, it proves to us that Jesus is zealous, not just for God's house, but on a very personal basis. He is zealous for our, each one of us, our purification. After all, we ourselves, you and I, are not unlike those two retrievers that I was just talking about who are drawn into the muddy mess of this world all around us, who are affected by these things, and who bear not just our own sin, but shame and guilt that attends sin, even the sin of other people that clings to us as we bear these things in our own bodies and in our minds. Friend, even right now, here in this place of worship, and especially in this place of worship, you might be thinking, I myself, because of my own sin or sin done to me, feel muddy here in this place, especially as we're meeting with the holy God in worship. But friend, if you are in Christ, the gospel of Jesus tells you that he will not leave you in this muddy, sinful estate. He loves you far too much to let you go on wallowing outside in the mud and muck of this world. And it's in his goodness that he washes us thoroughly and lovingly brings us into his house of worship, calling us the family of God. But why? so that we might enjoy purified, grace-filled, unbridled, unbroken fellowship with him. And so, friends, if you catch nothing else this evening, please catch this. It's our main point, that Jesus is zealous for your purification. And we'll see this in our text and how he zealously cleaned both the temple and the church even how he's willing and able to clean us. Those will make for our three points this evening, that Jesus in his zeal cleanses the temple, the church, and us as individuals. Friends, we see this comforting truth first on display in how he zealously cleansed the temple, in specifically verses 13 through 17. So look with me, if you will, again at this passage in verse 13 and following. It says this, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, And catch this, the money changers doing what? Sitting there. What a smack in the face. Now, we don't have time, unfortunately, to unpack the fuller context of this Passover meal that was going on in John chapter 2. This Passover meal that even stretched out throughout the entire week. However, it is most important for us to know here and now in this time that this meal was a gift from God's own hand given in love to God's own people. It was, indeed, an Old Testament sacrament, as our Westminster Confession points out to us, that God had established all the way back in Exodus chapter 12 with his people in order to represent Christ well in advance as the true atoning Passover lamb. 
but not only did this Passover meal that was about to be taken here in this time, not only did it represent Christ in advance of his coming, it also represented all of Christ's benefits to his people, his righteousness on display. And so here in John chapter 2, we see the Passover as the occasion and the temple as the location of this week-long celebration. So believers in that time, even here in John 2, were drawn to Jerusalem specifically from all around the known world in order to enter into God's holy place and meet with him and truly worship. This was a place then that was not to ever have even a hint of false worship, nor let that false worship ever be allowed into that church, if you will. And so in John chapter 2, verse 13, we see Jesus of all people, go into this temple, the house of his father. But you might be thinking as well, along with me, why did Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, who is a God himself, have to go into that same temple along with sinners like us? Well, he did it for two very key theological reasons. First, in order to perfectly obey the law of God in our place, And so attribute his perfect obedience actively of the law of God to us. But also, secondly, in order to lead us by the true example that only God can of what biblical worship looks like. And so in this way, Jesus proved himself to be both fully man, but also fully God simultaneously in his coming into the temple. But when he entered into that temple, we see that he became furious, right? What did he see that made him furious? Well, friends, I believe he saw the slippery slope of sloppy worship. He saw the love of money replacing the love of God. He saw evil men leeching off of those who had traveled far and wide to worship God through sacrifice. But catch this, they they were able to Uh, sidetrack their worship because the people had opted to buy the animals for sacrifice at the temple in the moment rather than ahead of time as God had commanded in the Old Testament law. It was through even their negligence of the law that the people were taken advantage of. And so the money changers sitting there at the temple took advantage of God's people. They didn't just set up shop outside of the temple walls. No, these money changers dared to move into the holy place of God's worship inside those same temple courts. And to add insult to injury, they charged the people who were trying to buy those animals around four times the going rate, according to the Mishnah, which is a resource from the first and second century. Four times the going rate. Talk about inflation, right? Their worship, though, because of their misplaced nature of it, had become adulterated. And all for the cause of the God of capital C convenience, the worshipers fell prey to a den of robbers. 
these robbers had stolen the attention of the people away from a true heart of brokenness and contriteness and replaced it with a concern over just how many animals Joe Israelite could buy in the moment in order to pay their dues to God. These robbers stole the significance of grace and replaced it with a focus on trying to earn God's favor in the moment. These robbers stole the joy of the people's salvation and exchanged the joy of it for a dry, ritualistic, dead religion. But above all, these robbers sought, they failed, but they sought to steal God's glory by replacing what had been set apart for holy use with noisy shops and stands and tables lined with coins from all around the known world. And so Jesus, when he entered into the temple, became rightly furious over this debacle. See, our God is a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with even one other person, nor will he let his glory be stolen or, catch this, his people be abused or extorted by false teachers and false worshipers. And so Jesus threw down the gauntlet in that place of worship, and he fashioned for himself a whip of cords. He used every necessary force to drive the workers of evil out from the holy place of God. He poured out their coins, he overturned their tables, and he spoke clearly to all who heard, do not make my father's house a house of trade. But brothers and sisters, if we are being honest with ourselves in this place, you and I are not all that unlike those worshipers who were distracted in their own worship, are we? See, we do not think of breaking God's commandments in terms of robbery, but every time that we choose our own personal comforts, conveniences, or concerns over worshiping God wholeheartedly, we are robbing him in essence. And furthermore, we end up robbing our own selves even of experiencing God's joy and goodness and grace when we find ourselves breaking the law of God. And so we need desperately for our worship to be purified. Well, friends, this brings us to point number two, that not only did Jesus zealously cleanse the temple, but he essentially promised to cleanse the church, futuristically speaking, in verses 18 through 22. And he did this specifically through his atoning death and bodily resurrection from the dead. Look with me at what the Jews asked of him in verse 18. After he kicked out those money changers, they said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, won't you show us a symbol of your authority? Now, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience here, but if a cop were to ever pull you over, if you were just speeding a little bit on the highway, they are required to show you what? Their badge, right? This is essentially what the Jews were asking of Jesus in the moment. See, the Israelites were essentially saying something to the effect of, Jesus, we see that you did this great work before our eyes, but what is the basis of your authority? Where is your badge? I mean, sure, we also want to worship God, but we couldn't have been the ones to rightly discard and depose those evil ones, the money changers from these temple courts. So who gave you the right to do this? Were you just feeling fed up and rebellious in the moment? 
like some kid from the 90s? <laughs> or were you acting on behalf of the Lord God Almighty himself? Friends, how did Jesus answer them? I love the way he answered that. He didn't just speak clear words to them. He actually spoke confusing words. He prophesied. He purposefully guised his spiritual and magisterial authority in the most profound of all ways by prophesying these words, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But what happened? Did they believe this word? No, they, they ended up becoming provoked by these words. And they essentially retorted immediately, who do you think you are? It took us 46 years to build this temple. Sadly, the Jews had missed the whole point of what Jesus was saying. See, he was speaking of the temple of his body, as the scriptures tell us, for he himself is the glory of God in the flesh, the dwelling place of God with man, the Lamb of God who is himself the true and the better temple. And he refused to allow this picture that had been given to the people prefigured in that earthly temple, this picture of himself, to become tainted with sin. It's as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and these are Jesus' words here from Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, again, Jesus' words, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. So Jesus didn't need to assume any authority or put himself in the defense, <laughs> that badge, that authority, the right, it was already his. My greatest hero of the faith, J. Gerson Machen, who started Westminster Seminary, that late Presbyterian pastor, put it so well in describing Jesus's authority. He said that Jesus claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. He wasn't just some good teacher or an example for us to follow. No, he was the son of God and still is to this day. He is, in fact, our true prophet, priest, and king, and he would prove his divine authority in both his unjust death, but also his bodily resurrection from that same place of death. And so as true prophet, Jesus dictates God's truth to us, truth which never changes even in the face of postmodernism today. As true priest, he cleanses God's people, making us clean even in spite of our own weak and feeble thoughts before him. And as true king, he rules over God's people with righteousness, giving us true equity in the name of Christ, not social justice or equity that we see around us in our culture. But in his mercy, he has gone to the most extreme of all measures to purify us, his people, his church. See, just as the prophet Moses was consumed utterly with the worship of God upon returning from Mount Sinai, that he in effect tore down the golden calf made out to Baal and instated God's law for the good of his people, Jesus, the true and the better prophet, does not want us, the church, to become ever enslaved or captivated by even a hint of false worship, or for us to bend the knee to the gods of our culture around us, the gods of deconstructionism and post-liberalism. This is why we, as a church, positively, joyfully sing God's own thoughts 
and songs back to his listening ears every Sunday. It is why we, as a church plant, are so careful not to conform the content of our worship to the passing fads and the whims of this culture. It is why we treasure the gospel of Christ and him crucified and never replace this message of the gospel with false ideologies of self-help or politically driven speeches or entertaining light shows as so many megachurches do these days. It is why, though, we positively lift up each other in fervent prayer with earnestness for God to answer us and for his glory to be made manifest in our midst. And it is why we do the hard work of, op of openly confessing our sins and our struggles in confidence with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, I have known so many of you. I'm so thankful to even be able to say that. For at least, what, 12, 13 years now? <laughs> Time flies. And I know personally that yours is indeed a true and real and lasting, in spite of the changes, which we've all seen, it's a real hunger for the word of Christ. And I thank God for that. Yours is a spiritual vitality that is meant to be spurred onward and upward in spite of all the odds, in spite of how big or small this church ever gets. Yours is the pleasing aroma of Christ and a fragrant offering of praise before God most high. And it is a direct fulfillment of what Christ secured for you as individuals when he bought and cleansed and purified his church for himself. In the words of one of my favorite professors at Westminster Seminary, Dr. Johnny Gibson, it is from Christ's riven side, just like Adam, that he brought forth his bride. But why? Why us? Why would he, the spotless and holy one, lay down his life for us filthy and vile sinners? Dear friend, it was all, all for the joy that was set before him, that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. See, his joy, his zeal, his burning passion is for the cleansing of his bride, his bride whom he has now clothed in the garments of his own righteousness. And so in John 2, we see that Jesus cleansed the temple back then, and that in good time, he would cleanse the church for himself and secure our redemption. But friend, do you believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus is able and willing to even cleanse you? And that he is zealous to cleanse you? See, we see this implicitly in verses 23 through 25 of our text. His zeal for every member of God's house is right here. See, Jesus stands ready and eager even now to cleanse you and wash you with the waters of baptism by the word of truth. But please hear me correctly. This is not just an evangelistic call to come to Jesus and be justified by faith before God. Though, of course, if that is you even here in this place, that invitation to come to Jesus for the first time is certainly open to you right now. But rather, for you who are already believers, this, in John 2, is implicitly a call for each one of us 
to know and to enjoy the ongoing experience of sanctification as the gospel washes over you and showers itself over you day by day by day. See, the glory of Jesus' cleansing work in us as believers is that he neither requires nor expects us to clean up our own selves in order to commune with him by prayer and by the reading of his word. We can never perfectly submit all parts of our lives unto his lordship. Rather, the gospel invites us to come as we sing, as we are before him. Jesus knows that we are unable to present ourselves as pure and holy before God. And so confession of our complete reliance upon his saving mercy is all that he requires from us. Do you believe that? See, Jesus, as verse 24 implies, does not entrust himself to even our noblest desires to, to please him or our ability to believe in him or our own failed ability to clean up our own selves and get our acts together before him. Thankfully, this is the gospel. Solely by faith in his name, we are made clean and justified. Friends, there's a powerful application in this gospel truth for you and me. It's found later on in scripture in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that our bodies are truly temples. Even the uh, fulfillment of the earthly temple that we see here in John 2, we are now that fulfillment of it, just as Christ is. This temple in which the Holy Spirit resides. The text in 1 Corinthians 6 tells us this about our own bodies. You are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Everything you do, everything you look at, everything you taste and touch should be unto the glory of God. But you might be thinking, even here in this moment, in honest, doubtful response. Yeah, but Rich, I don't feel clean. I might, this might be true of me, but I don't feel clean. I have desecrated my body. I have entertained lustful thoughts. Even as a Christian, I have fallen prey to foreign loves and idols of all kinds. How can Jesus not just save me, but want me? And so to you, dear Christian, who might be even doubting here in this place, and I mean this sincerely, Jesus knew all that you have ever done and ever will do. And yet he proved that he wanted you by willfully dying for you on that cross of wood. See, his cleansing of the physical temple pales in comparison to his ability and his willingness to cleanse you and remove from you every last one of your sins as far as the east is from the west. And so as we close, I want to turn your mind's eye back to my story about the dogs. Because who doesn't love a story about dogs, right? <laughs> See, thinking back to Baxter and Annabelle, who had no idea the damage they had done in the moment, much like us. <laughs> in the midst of my sheer panic over the mud that they had tracked into my friend's clean, white, pure house, my dog Baxter quickly picked up on my facial expressions. I was absolutely livid. <laughs> and you guys know me, you know I don't get angry easily, but I was angry. <laughs> 
However, in that moment immediately, as his heart began to sulk, my heart in tandem became full with pity for him. See, I couldn't help but rush over to my little two-year-old puppy and give him, I know it sounds weird, but give him a giant hug. Of course, he's just a dog. (laughs) We all know that, right? (laughs) Dogs are not humans for the record. (laughs) But my love for him compelled me to comfort even my little puppy in the midst of his dirtiness and then proceed to wash him thoroughly. Brother or sister in Christ, do you believe that Jesus has a far greater love for you than an owner has for his dog? See, your dirtiness, as great as it may be, is of absolutely zero surprise to him. He knows it full well, even better than you do. And yet he is still zealous for your purification. As the gospel of grace makes more and more and more inroads into the darkest parts of your own life, he is still zealous for your humble reliance upon him. He is still zealous for your joy in knowing the liberty that comes from a clean, washed conscience before the Father. And he, who is now raised from the dead, will at the last raise you with a body that will be forever incorruptible, free from sinning. And so, brother or sister, if you believe this, believe then the response of Jesus, which he speaks over every single man and woman who comes to him by faith. The words of Jesus, I will, I want to be clean. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that such is the mystery you've given to us, the mystery of the gospel that pursues runaway sinners such as ourselves. It doesn't just pursue us and hunt us down. Your goodness and your mercy, which follow us all the days of our lives, don't just recklessly pursue us, but they bind our hearts back to you. And they bind our affections to you, O Christ. So Lord, we ask that the cries of our own hearts in this place and forevermore as a church plant here at New Hope, these cries might be to the praise of your glorious grace. That they wouldn't just be consumed by theological musings or how best we can clean up ourselves and get our name out there, even all good intentions. That would be marked by zeal biblical zeal for God's house. Zeal to say the hard things as culture just completely turns its back on you. Zeal to speak the truth in love and zeal to pursue righteousness at all costs. For that word righteousness has a name, Jesus Christ the righteous. And it's in his name alone that we pray.